at this uh, part of the Bible in Genesis. Uh, and what we'll do this afternoon, because we've had a number of things going on, is kind of include the Bible reading in the context of the sermon. So if you've been waiting for the Bible reading and it hasn't come, uh, we'll be looking at it together. So don't stress. How about we pray uh, that God will help us to understand his word as we uh, look at it together now. If you, just before I do that, if you don't have a Bible and you'd like to look on with one, there's a whole stack on the table over there. There's also a little um, handout which will give you some heads up as to where we're going. And feel free to get up and grab one if you'd like to. Let's pray. Loving Father, we ask that you'll help us now as we uh, look at your word to understand you. Um, and to be filled with a fresh appreciation for how you are a promise-making and a promise-keeping God. Uh, and we thank you that because of your promises, uh, we can look forward to an eternity of being right with you. Please, uh, this afternoon, uh, for any of us who, who don't really know what this is about, we ask that you'll make it clear. And for those of us who have perhaps heard some of this stuff before or know it well, we ask that you'll continue to encourage us as we follow Jesus. Amen. Uh, well, my wife and I come from Canberra. At least we spent the biggest part of our years in Canberra, the very inner city part of Canberra. And we lived in one of the older houses of Canberra. Now, Canberra's a young city, so a really old house was one that was built just after the Second World War. And our place was 1947. And many of the houses that were built in our part of Canberra were built with this monocrete substance. Uh, and in the winter times, they could be incredibly cold. They would be full of damp, and they weren't the kind of building that you'd really want to be staying in in Canberra. And uh, what happens, of course, in all cities is the gentrification of the inner city suburbs. And so what we started finding was that a whole bunch of people having to make decisions about whether they would sell up and have their house destroyed and maybe if they were wealthy enough build another one on the site or whether they would renovate because the houses themselves just, well, they were small, they were cold and they were kind of difficult for people with families to live in. Well, when we look at the Bible around this topic of Abraham, one of the concepts that I want us to get into our heads is the difference between demolition and renovation. And God, as he addresses us, we see that he is the renovating God, not the demolishing God. Though it may seem like things are due to be demolished, and we discover that very, very quickly. So let's, uh, let's have a look. Genesis 1 and 2, we saw that everything was good that God had made and uh, as we saw the banner you've got the man and the woman living in a good creation in the garden enjoying relationship with God and each other but in Genesis 3 things go seriously bad the serpent deceives the woman they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil God brings curses upon the serpent the woman and uh, the ground and death enters into human experience and as you read through Genesis um, it, it's a pretty depressing picture. Uh, if you wanted to know how to rate uh, the book of Genesis, I think probably somewhere between MA plus and R would be the right rating. Um, of course, in our picture book Bibles, no, we've got a PG or a G rating there. 
But the reality of what we're talking about, murder, incest, rape, um, a whole gamut of things that lead God to be very unhappy with the creation that he's made. In fact, if you pick it up in Genesis chapter 6 and uh, verses 5 and 6, you read this. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. That's pretty depressing, isn't it? Um, What a serious indictment on humanity. The, The wickedness of the human race, every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. I mean, if that's God's report card on humanity, it's a major, major fail. There's nothing redeeming in this report card. There's nothing good here to look forward to. It's only, it's every, it's all. So what will God do? Well, in verse 7, the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race that I've created and with them the animals, the birds, the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a dreadful statement to be hearing from God. And I mean dreadful in the serious form of the word. That God might destroy what he had made because he regrets making it. As you read on, uh, things don't actually get better. Uh, But we read the account of demolition, it seems, on a fairly serious scale. Down in verse 11, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. Again, it's, it's everybody, it's all over, there is corruption against God. And that works itself out in violence, Um, one against another. And as you read through uh, this account, you see just how badly things have fallen. There was a glimmer of hope in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. But as you look down through the descendants of Adam, it doesn't seem like there's hope to be found in any one. However, there is one man, and this man, verse 8, is Noah. But Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. And then it reads, this is the account of Noah and his family. And what we'll discover, and of course we have to skirt over this, but I'd encourage you to read it if you've never read it before, is God brings his judgment upon the world. Uh, There is a catastrophic flood. There is the destruction of mankind. There's the destruction of all the animals, except for the family of Noah and two of every kind. And when you look at that, God isn't demolishing, he's renovating, seriously renovating. Now you can go on and you can see that uh, in many ways it seems like God's starting again. Uh, Chapter 8, verse 1, God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark, and he sent a wind over the earth and the waters receded, and the uh, earth actually dries up. And then down in chapter 9 and verse 1, God then blessed Noah and his son, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Now that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Where have we heard that before? Well, that's what's said to Adam and Eve. 
That's the creation mandate continuing now, but it's through Noah and his descendants. Um, well, maybe things are looking up and you can keep reading down uh, what happens after the flood. It's not good. Uh, you can read about the accounts of, uh, of Noah's descendants and what follows. And you'll get to chapter 11. And I'll read the opening words here. Now, the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in China and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. And then they said, come, let's build for ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Now, when you look at that, it, um, it seems pretty impressive. Um, here you've got this massive gathering of people. Um, they, they gather together, they work together, they, they've got innovation, they've got this idea that they can build a civilization. But there is no room for God in this picture. Listen to verse 4 again. Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. This is human enterprise with no need for God. In fact, this is like the world that you and I live in today. Human enterprise, we can do it, we can solve it. If we work hard enough, if we get smart enough, if we investigate deeply enough, if we unite everybody together with this common idea, then we won't need God. We'll be able to do it ourselves. But God's response, well, verse 5, and you might listen to the irony here, but the Lord came down to see the city. I mean, they think they're going to build a tower that reaches to the heavens. The Lord comes down to see it. Um, and the tower that the people were building. The Lord said, if there's one people speaking the same language, they've begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over the earth and they stopped building the city. And that is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world and from there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. This Tower of Babel incident, um, it's a picture of humanity rising up and rejecting God. If we thought it was bad when Adam and Eve turned their back upon God, and it was, then with the Tower of Babel, you've got the whole of humanity uniting together, corporately pushing God away. And so God brings his judgment on them. He confuses the languages. He scatters them to different places. And that's the world that we live in today. Well, it seems pretty depressing, doesn't it? Um, it, it seems like a, a, a demolition divide, conquer, um, and when you look at this, um, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of hope. But that's where chapter 12 takes a turn. Genesis chapter 12 is one of the key passages that shapes the direction of the whole of the Bible. And let me read uh, from the first few verses of Genesis 12. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. 
I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot and all the possessions that they had accumulated and the people that they'd acquired in Haran and they set out for the land of Canaan and they arrived there. Abram travelled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Moriah at Shechem. At that time the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring, or seed, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. And from there he went on towards the hills of east of Bethel, pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. And then Abram set out and continued towards the Negev. What I want us to see, first of all, in the first few verses, is that it is God who takes the initiative. So look back at uh, chapter 12, uh, verse 1. Go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land that I will show you. This is God taking the initiative. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And when you look at this, there's a real contrast to Genesis 3 and to Genesis 11. So with the Tower of Babel uh, incident in our minds and God scattering the people in response, now he's going to bring people together from Abraham's descendants and they will be blessed and bless others. Notice also this language of blessing um, in chapter 3 with the curse of, uh, of the serpent and, and uh, the curse of the land and other mentions of curse. Now we've got blessing, I will bless you, you will be a blessing, I will bless those who bless you and, and the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. There's an undoing of the curse that will be worked out through the promises that are made to Abraham. Um, this isn't man's intellect or achievement. It's not his technology. It's not his unity and his corporate activity that will save him. Um, this is God. God undoing the, uh, the, the tragedy of human rebellion and bringing about a hope of rescue. God will bless people. This won't be demolition, it'll be renovation with God's people in a new land, a new place and they will be under the rule of God and they will be blessed by God and they will bless others. So just to pause and, and think about what's going on here with Abram. From one man, Abram, God is planning to undo the curse on the creation. He's, he's planning to restore his world. He's planning to bring blessing. And it's going to take place through Abram's descendant or seed. But there's a problem. The problem? Well, Abram, verse 4, is 75 years old. He's not really in the child-making stakes. Uh, you, you read on a little bit further. Uh, to chapter 17 
He's 75 back in chapter 12. Now what is he? Well, in chapter 17 and verse 15, God also said to Abraham, so his name's been changed, as for Sarai, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai, her name will be Sarah. So both Abram and Sarai get a name change from Abraham to and Sarah. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of people will come from her. Abram fell down. He laughed. And he said to himself, Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? You see, the promise that God has made through Abraham and Sarah looks humanly impossible. Sarah's barren, hasn't had any children, and she ain't getting any younger. 90 years of age, her husband's 100. What hope do they have of bearing the promises of God? Well, it's an interesting story, and um, it's got all kinds of intrigue and evil associated with the accounts in Genesis here. But we need to realise that the scope of what God's doing is more than just the story of one man's ancestry or descendants. It really is here the reversing of the curse on creation. Um, come back to chapter 17 of Genesis and from verse 3. Abram fell face down and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give you as an everlasting possession and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. This is a big-scale promise, right? Um, you notice that he's not going to simply be the father of one nation, but of many nations. There's going to be blessing that comes through kings coming from him, nations coming from him. God is going to establish a covenant, a, 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 a contract with him that will be everlasting. You see, God's plan here is to renovate and, and not just to fix up a few people in a few places. It's actually to restore the creation. It's to place God's people back again under God's rule. It's to gather God's people together in one place. It's for God to rule over them for blessing. And I think what we see here is that framework of, of God's people under God's rule, enjoying God's blessing in God's place. That's what he's planning to do through Abraham. Well, as we read on, um, there are a lot of roadblocks along the way. And um, we're going to jump quite a few uh, passages of Scripture. And of course, this is only a, a ten-stop flight over the entire Bible. Um, so I'm sorry if your favourite passages get get missed out. Somebody did ask me last Sunday, Sunday, how come we're not looking at the Exodus in this framework? And it's a very good question. Uh, two reasons. One is we're actually following 
and we'll read this tonight. We're following the overview from Matthew chapter 1, and we'll come to that in a minute, which doesn't focus so much on the Exodus, but the New Testament does focus heaps on the Exodus, and therefore I feel happy about the fact that we spent a whole term on it last year, and if you want to catch up on that, you can go and listen to the talks. Um, It's a little arbitrary, but it's not totally arbitrary, what we're looking at. So, Let's pick it up then at the book of Exodus, Um, because if you've worked your way through Genesis, you'll know that uh, Abram does get a son, Isaac. He's told to sacrifice his son, but God has already uh, provided another sacrifice. You see Jacob and Esau, these twins, and they're tussling over who has the birthright. And then there's Jacob with his 12 sons and Joseph being the saviour of the people from the famine. And then they're all off in Egypt when you get to the end of Exodus. Um, And this is what we hear. So, sorry, the beginning of Exodus. So in Exodus chapter 1 and verses 6 and 7, Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in number, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Now it sounds again, doesn't it, like that blessing language, be fruitful and multiply, they're doing that well. Um, there were, were 70 people back in verse 5 who headed off on a trek uh, to Egypt when the famine took place. And now that Joseph and all his brothers and that generation have died, they are so numerous that you can't count them. But they're not in the land of blessing. And then you can read on about uh, the great events of the Exodus, how God's people who were enslaved are uh, rescued and how Moses is the rescuer. God does this through the plagues, through the Passover, um, that wonderful Exodus event. Uh, they go through the, the uh, sea on dry land. They go to Mount Sinai. God gives the, the law, the Ten Commandments. They're gathered together there around the mountain. And then you can read more of God's provision through Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. You can read about the temple and, or sorry, the tabernacle and the sacrifices and the Levites and a whole range of things are important. And then you get to the end uh, of this uh, first five books of the Bible, which are called the books of Moses. And um, in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 1, we'll just pick it up there just to uh, touch base with how things are going. In Deuteronomy chapter 1, let me me just read the first three verses. These are the words Moses spoke to all Israel in the wilderness east of the Jordan, that is the Arabah opposite Suf, between Paran and Tophel, Laban, Hazaroth and Dizahab. And then it says, it takes 11 days to go from Horeb to Kanesh Barnea, by the Mount Seir Road. Now, that's significant. So Horeb, right, that's Sinai. That's where God gave the Ten Commandments. So the purpose of God rescuing the people in Egypt was to bring them out so they might worship him. They do that at Mount Horeb. Next thing, it's an 11-day trip, walking to get from Horeb to the place that's just there on the edge of the Jordan River to go back into the land, the land of promise. 11 days, that's how long it should take. And then the next verse says this, In the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses proclaimed to the Israelites all that the Lord had commanded him concerning them. 
we are meant to get the paradox. We're told it's an 11 day journey, but it took 40 years. Something had gone wrong. What had gone wrong? Well, spoiler alert, sin. The same problem in the Garden of Eden repeats itself again and again and again and again and again. They're only just out of being rescued from slavery uh, to the Egyptians and they complain that slavery was better off, that the food that they barely got to eat was better than what God's providing them in the desert. They're groaning and they're complaining. Their own selfishness comes to the fore. The problem of sin remains. Uh, You can read about it then as they enter into the land with Joshua and Judges and Samuel and Kings. And if you're looking for the blessing that was promised, sadly, you will find failure after failure after failure. Again and again and again. We'll discover the Kings when we read on. And uh, just when you get a glimmer of hope for the people... Things go south again. And the problem? Well, there's all kinds of problems. Problems on the outside, threats from the Assyrians, threats from the Babylonians, threats from the Egyptians, the Philistines, the Hittites. There's so many threats on the outside, but that's not really the problem. The problem is in here. The problem that we saw last week. I will make my rules my way. Thank you, God. That's the problem. It's what the Bible calls sin. God's promise, however, the promise that he made to Abraham, the promise that you can read of through Moses, the promise to Noah, um, all the promises that God has made, they still stand. God's promise stands, but people keep messing it up. It gets worse and worse There's all kinds of things go wrong. And the question is, how is God going to be able to renovate this world if people just keep destroying it and turning against him? And the answer? Deal with sin. That's how. The only way that God is going to restore this creation is by dealing with the problem of the human heart. By dealing with our sinfulness. It's not education. It's not science. It's not money. It's not technology. God is going to solve the problem by dealing with the heart. But we're jumping ahead. Um, And spoiler alert, by the way, at the end of the Old Testament, uh, from page 3 in my Bible to page 897, it goes pretty bad. Um, It seems like God's promises have failed. It seems like his words are empty. It seems like the rhetoric of false religion. But when you turn from the Old Testament to the New Testament, you discover some incredible promises being fulfilled. And we'll look at this in more detail um, in a few weeks, but I'd hate for you to go from here looking at this catalogue of despair in the Old Testament and not realise the hope that has been shown in God fulfilling these promises. So when you turn from the Old Testament to the New Testament, and many of us have a, um, a blank page between the two, you, I did say to people once you can tear that out if you want because there is no 
difference really it's still God speaking um, but I keep mine in because it makes it easier to find Matthew um, this is the genealogy it says Matthew 1 verse 1 this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah son of David son of Abraham and then you can read right down through that genealogy and you'll notice that the Messiah being the son of Abraham and the son of David is key to this genealogy and so in verse 17, you get a summary. Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Now, three key things there. Abraham, David, and the exile to Babylon. This genealogy has given shape to this Bible intent. Today, we're looking at son of Abraham, the promises made to Abraham. Next week, we'll look at son of David, the promises made to David. The following fortnight, we'll look at the exile, when the people are sent into Babylonian captivity, and then we'll get to the Messiah. But we're following through history, that is his story, God's promises to Abram, that get focused further with David and then get expanded spiritually during the exile to Babylon through the prophets. But what do we see here? Well, we see God will keep and has kept his promises to Abram. Uh, we'll see more of that when we look at uh, the death of Jesus and we look at Genesis, uh, sorry, at Galatians chapter 3. But let me finish with a, um, a few words of encouragement. First of all, I want to encourage you to know God's promises, not to be biblically illiterate, not to be people who, who perhaps simply have, and I don't mean to disparage this in any way, but not to be people who simply have a young child's understanding of the Old Testament. Um, young children can have a great understanding of, of the Old Testament. And I pray that through this series... And what we're doing in Salt Kids, our children will, will not simply know that there's a story about Daniel and one about David and Goliath and, and one about the Garden of Eden and one about something else, but they'll get to hear his story being worked out. But how much more should we be able to grapple with, with the wonder of God's promises as adults? Um, and I want to encourage you to know his promises because he's a promise-keeping God. And you'll, you'll discover that more and more and more if you read the promises so that as you then get to the New Testament, you can see how he's kept them. One of the great encouragements for me to persevere as a believer is the truth that God made promises over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years to a range of people that all find their climax and their answer in Jesus. Um, it hasn't been humanly manufactured. There's no grand human conspiracy. This is God's work in the world, making promises and fulfilling them in his son, who is the son of Abraham. God has made promises. He's kept those promises and we can take hold of those promises. But I want to encourage us to know them. It's one of the reasons why it's great just to, to keep kind of reading through the Bible progressively 
um, to follow a plan, maybe starting up next year perhaps, if, if you've not been able to do this before, to try and read through the Bible in a year or maybe in two years or in three years or in five years or even during your lifetime to work your way through and to note the promises that God makes. To see that God is the one who is preparing us for, for the answer to what went wrong at the start and it will be found in his promises. I want to encourage us to be people who, who are conscious of that and encouraged by that and put our hope in God being the promise-making and promise-keeping God. And this is, what, this is what will help us to combat the lies of the devil as well. The devil, the ancient deceiver, continues to deceive people today. But as we come to know God's truth, so we can resist the temptations of the evil one. And uh, if you have a look at those uh, pictures of the armour of God in Ephesians chapter 6, you'll see that so much of it has to do with the promises of God being trusted, being held onto, being worked out and standing firm against Satan. And of course that brings us to the second thing which I've kind of already said. Not only does God make the promises but he has kept his promises. Uh, I remember stumbling over 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 20 uh, back in 1982. I'm sure I'd read it before then. But in 1982, no matter how many promises God has made, they find their yes or their amen in Christ. And uh, that just hit me that, wow, every promise God had made is fulfilled in Jesus. Every one. Yes, yes, yes. And, and you can read through the end of Luke's Gospel where the resurrected Jesus walks with his followers and he opens up the Bible and beginning with Moses and the prophets, he tells them everything that was written about him. Jesus knows. He's conscious of the fact that he is fulfilling promises and that's why he says the Messiah must suffer and must be raised from the dead because he's keeping the promises that God has made. See, it might be the case that you struggle at times to know whether you can trust God. Is, is he there? Does he care? Can I, can I really put my life in his hands? Can I depend upon him? Can I know that he's trustworthy? And if you're asking those questions and you're looking at what's going on in life, there'll be some times when it's going really well and you'll think, Yes, isn't God wonderful? He's, he's so faithful. My life is blessed. It's terrific. And there'll be other times when life sucks. And you think, I'm not sure that God is faithful. I'm not sure that he can be trusted. I, I, I don't feel his presence. And I, it seems like he's forgotten me. And if we just look to the circumstances around us, we'll be like a kid with a daisy going, God loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. But if we look to Jesus, if we look to Jesus and how God has kept every promise that he's ever made in Jesus, in his birth, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, in his ascension, in his rule at the right hand of God on high, if we look to the promises that God has made and then read the New Testament and discover that he's kept every one of them, 
There is the evidence that God can be trusted. Even when life is falling apart, so it seems, God is at work and he can be trusted. The evidence? Jesus. Jesus. Only and always Jesus. Another thing I want to leave with us here as we finish looking at this is God is not the demolition man. He's the renovator. God has always had a remnant. There was Noah. There's Moses. There's the people that put the blood of the lamb above the doorpost. Elijah, when he thought that there was no one else who didn't bow the knee to the prophets, to the, the, the Baals, against all of those 400 prophets of Baal, goes back to Horeb and calls out to God. And God tells him to get up and go back and, and realise that there's actually many. And as you read through the accounts of the exile, then you'll see that there are people like Daniel who are faithful and trusting God. God's always had people. He's the passionate, loving, promise-keeping, patient God. In 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, it says that God isn't slow as some understand slowness. Rather, God is holding back his anger, giving people time to turn back to him. Friends, this is the time that we live in, a time of God's patience. Who do you know who needs to hear about